podcast has bad words. <laughs> You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, a podcast that welcomes anyone but isn't for everyone. Today we're here with Jack Conti. Actually, uh, I'm here. Ryan went off to the bathroom. We'll we'll get back to him in a minute. Uh, Jack is the founder of Patreon. We've been talking about. Well, today we're going to talk about creative control. And I want to get right into some questions here in a moment. Before we do get into the audience questions, I did want to talk to you about you know, the thing that, about, that's been interesting about Patreon. We've been experimenting with these different models. I really like being able to do this private podcast format because it's six or 7,000 people. I'm not sure how many exactly. We're going to talk about that later in the episode. Um, and, and because they give us they're like the most understanding folks. They give us the leeway that, as you talked about during the minimal episode, sometimes folks, sometimes seagulls just come in and sort of like crap on what you're doing and fly away. That's yeah, they're called trolls on the internet. That seagull seems like a more appropriate term because mm-hmm. it's just like flying overhead, pooping on whatever you're doing, and and flying away. That's the better metaphor. I like that. Well, well so let's talk about Patreon and. We understand why you made it now, but now what makes it different? There are, I guess you could call competitors or other people in this space or whatever we're calling it. I'm not sure of the vernacular here, but um, OnlyFans, obviously. Everyone knows about that at this point. Um, and it seems to me like they started as a sort of um, beta max to VHS, and then they found their own sort of lane. And I, I understand that Apple Podcasts is, is, is doing something similar as well. Can you talk about what makes Patreon different? Yeah, it, basically everybody's doing it now. Some okay. people have built just one-for-one copies of Patreon into their platforms. Like YouTube basically just built Patreon into YouTube. That's true. Um, subscription model or whatever. Yeah, they call yeah. it channel memberships. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and and then there's and then there's some versions that are you know essentially like subscription payments but without the rest of Patreon. Um, but the rest being what? The rest being the membership feature set. And uh-huh. so like it's a few things. One, it's um, oh, it's, it's it's so many things. But there's a few core things. Um, nobody has our main thing, which is the creator first mentality with which we build, which mm-hmm. is really our true differentiator. I think it's like. It's the thing that really makes Patreon different. That well, it's like, built by creators. It, 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 exactly, and and everybody at the company is on a mission to help and serve creators, mm. as opposed to to help and serve advertisers. Right, that's like one of the things that makes Patreon very mm. different from a literally from like every line of code, every that's customer awesome. service request, every content policy decision that we make, everything is asking the question. How can we do this best for creators? Right. So th- that is ultimately, I think, what makes Patreon different. But that's a little bit more philosophical than I think what you were getting at. And maybe the the, the things that that I think are, are core to Patreon are one, the subscription payment from fan to creator. Mm-hmm. Two, the fact that creators own their data. Like we give creators the data on on Facebook. Um, you don't get your data about your fans. You don't. You don't get if somebody likes your page. You may or may not be able to reach them next week yeah, when you make a post. Right. Like yeah. Facebook mitigates the relationship between you and your fans. Oh, now. we experience that all the time. We have, I don't know, it's approaching a million people on Facebook. But if you we put up a post on Facebook, three thousand people see it, and it's yeah. like, well, wait a minute, the disparity here is so dramatic. If something reaches a large swath of them, it might be eight percent, and you're like, well, wait a minute. That's because you don't own the relationship on on. Facebook, right. even though you should, because the they they opted in, yeah. And so the person, like, hey, I want to receive updates from the minimalists. I choose to subscribe to you, right. creator, 
And then, but, but at some point in that journey, the word subscription changed meaning. Mm. On Facebook, a subscription, and on YouTube, a subscription does not necessarily mean that I'm going to see that thing. Yeah. Oh, that, for sure. That's, that I is, it was YouTube as well, yeah. That's it's, a, in my feeling, well, it's they, like a breach of contract. That's they, a breach of trust. They use it as leverage to get more money from you. They're basically yes. like, oh, you want to reach your whole audience? We can do that for you. Oh, that was when it really yeah. pissed me off. When I, because, you know, I spent a decade building Pomplamoose's fan base on Facebook. Mm-hmm. When I opened up that Facebook app and I saw, Congratulations, you reached 0.8% of your audience with this post. Would you like to reach 1.4%? Pay $200. I was like, fuck you, Facebook. No way. Slimy. Like, that is not where I want to build my business and my relationship with Mm. my fans, with customers, people who pay Mm -hmm. for things that I'm making and and then expect things from me. And now I may or may not reach them on that platform. Forget it. That's not. So, so anyway. The, what what is it about Patreon? Well, when you make a post to your patrons, it goes to 100% of your patrons, mm-hmm. 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. We don't choose who sees your post or don't. Like right. that's how it should be. Right. Yeah. Um, anything else is like again, in my view, a breach of contract. Yeah. And the, also, you have some you have some features. So like the, the you have the app, uh, you know, the iOS or Android app, obviously, and and people can can interact on there. We have a community tab where people often post things and interact with each other on the community tab. So that's outside of the regular post. So if you're listening to this, obviously you are a patron if you're listening to this or watching it if you're one of the the true fans slash VIP tiers. Um, The video version is within those tiers. But what what we've realized is like people, you know, start to have conversations on their own, even without us. And they start sharing things amongst each other. Not everyone feels compelled to do that. Some people just want to pay to get the private podcast and that's fine. Other people really want to participate with other people who are decluttering or simplifying or changing their life in some way. Yes. Mm. And, and the communities that we've found form on Patreon again, because of the fact that it's, you got to pay to be a part of that community. It's a it's a um, it's a vote with your with your dollars to be a part of something. You're saying I value this, not I will attend to this, mm. not I will fly over and crap on this person's hot dog, mm-hmm. not like I'll notice it. I will pay for this because it is something I value in my. It's a very active choice. It's yes. a very active decision, mm-hmm. and so it's a self-selecting community of people who value this thing and want to participate in it. Right. That's a different kind of group of people, and it manifests in the quality and the dynamics of the community itself. Yeah, I've noticed that, and very rarely do we have any seagulls on Patreon. We've had a couple, and uh, I get. It, by the way. It, uh, when I say seagulls, I don't mean people who have a difference of opinion from us. That's fine. We welcome that as long as it's not egregious. You're not yelling at someone else. But but for the most part, I think maybe we've had to ban maybe two or three people ever. And and usually those people are like brand new and they've come in and they've spent their you know $2 or whatever. And all of a sudden it's time for me to come in. It's like they spent $2 so they could crap on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But 99.99% of the time, it's active and concerned engagement even folks who disagree like we had um we had a uh, rfk jr on the podcast and like we didn't agree with him on everything you know for obvious reasons but or whatever and even ryan and i don't agree on well, ryan and i don't agree on, on anything i don't think <laughs> um yes we do no we don't yes we do <laughs> <laughs> and and what i what i realized is like yeah some people you know, they they disagreed with what he had to say but they did so in a kind way that you know, brought an additional perspective to the table 
Yeah. We welcome that all day. Oh, yeah. candid conversation and direct opinions said in a respectful way, mm. like to other human beings from human beings with good intent. Yeah. Like that's that's a part of the human experience. Absolutely. Like there's a that that's I think that's a wonderful part of the human experience. Yeah. And it yeah. helps it helps all parties grow in a way. I mean, you know, I I'll have every once in a while someone will hit me up on Twitter with, you know, something not egregious, but you know, challenging. And then I respond back. And then I, I very quickly see like, oh, this person doesn't want to have a conversation. Like they're, they just want to like shit on what we do. And at that point I'd have to walk away where with Patreon, yeah, it's like it creates a much better platform to have a conversation and yeah, less, less shitting. <laughs> Some of the best experiences that I've had on Patreon are when our patrons, when Pomplum's patrons have helped me change my mind and realize something. Yeah. Um, about myself even like uh, you know one i remember years ago this is after patreon had kind of started raising money and was starting to be like a real company but in my mind i was still i was still a creator identified as a creator not as a ceo sure Mm. and i wrote this blog post that kind of missed the mark because I, i was still thinking i'm a creator i'm a creator i'm a creator and I forgot that, like, no, 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 I, like Patreon has raised millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and I have a privilege and an access that a lot of people don't have, and I have to kind of start to be aware of that now. Sure. I didn't real. I was a frog in boiling water. My patrons are the ones who actually pointed that out to me. They're like, hey, Jack, here's what's going on. Here's what you're missing. Like, I relied on that feedback. It was really good feedback. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. a really important moment for me. I think that's awesome. Yeah, and I think being open to that you know there's a difference between criticism and feedback criticism says here's the problem bah humbug boohoo whatever criticism says hey here's the problem but here are some ideas about that problem here's a better understanding of the problem or maybe here are some potential solutions yeah that's, that's feedback correct yeah that's feedback yeah. Yeah, yeah as opposed to the criticism yeah. where and so In a weird way, it's almost as though social media has become the engine for criticism, Mm. but a place like Patreon is the engine for community and feedback. You know what the difference is, I think? And and I love this distinction between criticism and feedback. I I, I think the, the, the key distinction in my mind is that feedback comes from a place of belief in the person that you're giving the feedback to. Mm. It's like, I'm giving you this feedback because I care about you and I want you to know this information about the impact that what you just had on me. Mm -hmm. It's like, sometimes you don't know that, right? You don't know your impact on another person. They're they're invested. Yeah. Yeah. Emotionally for sure. Exactly. And and I think on, at least I've found our patrons will give us feedback when, because they because they believe in us, mm-hmm. yeah. not because they don't like it, because they believe in us yeah. and they and they trust us. Yeah. In, in, in fact, some of the feedback we got last year, and this happened to correspond really well with, with COVID because we had fewer guests, especially, you know, pre-vaccines and, and all of that before people started to feel comfortable being around other people again. Um, we, we, we reached out to our page because we were doing guests every week. And what we realized is actually the, our patrons, who are the audience we we whose opinion we value the most they were like yeah actually we like the episodes with just josh and ryan half the time and so now it's it's basically every other week where it's like we do a guest and then it's you know, a josh and ryan mm. episode yeah. guest 
Josh and Ryan episode. And so it, what we'll do is we'll sort of do just the duo where we, it's a more sort of stuff-centric, you know, minimalism, decluttering, those kinds of episodes which people get immense value from. And then we have a guest on to talk about something different. And that balance, we wouldn't have figured that out really without Patreon. We, we could have gone to Twitter and done a Twitter poll or something, but who knows what, what feedback we would have gotten from something like that. Yeah, that's really cool. I love that. And that yeah. makes sense. And to like... We, we do see some creators, like you learn fast with your patrons, right? Because yeah. it's that fast channel of communication. These are the people who are actually paying you for your work. Right. Yeah. That, like you actually, because I think the creator starts to feel the good intention from the patron base, it's easier to sort signal from noise because mm-hmm. instead of having to comb through hundreds of YouTube comments and wondering if I should tweak this or tweak that, it's like, no, these are the people who actually love me. And, and there's, there's a more trusting relationship there, which I think results in better changes to your business or whatever it is that you're doing. 100%. Yeah. Now let's talk about 100%. who Patreon is for, who it's not for. I, I often get people who say, should I start a Patreon? And I don't know, like if you haven't developed an audience first, because Ryan and I had, uh, we started Patreon, what, three years ago, roughly? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had seven years of building an audience first. And then we made the leap to Patreon, you know, whatever it was, three, four years ago. And, and in doing that, it was like, oh, we had already established, and still only a small percentage. You know, if, if a quarter million people listen to our minimal episode in a particular week, but then, what, six or 7,000 people support us on Patreon, you, you see the numbers there. It's much less than 10%. Mm-hmm. And those are, as Ryan called them, you know, the true fans or, or the, the people who are actually willing to support us. Mm-hmm. So I, I s- often see people start a Patreon and then they get really discouraged because six months in they have three supporters. Yeah, I probably shouldn't be saying this as CEO of Patreon, <laughs> but I'm just going to say it. Patreon's not magic. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. Like Patreon, you know. I thought that was your tagline. <laughs> Patreon, it's magic. Patreon. <laughs> I mean, to the question, should I start a Patreon? We've actually, you know, we, we've tried to be very, I think, open and clear about this. Like, um, there are some really great uh, platforms for building an audience. And I think we, we know them, right? Like yeah. Twitter, mm-hmm. YouTube. Sure. Um, Facebook. Mm-hmm. No, it's okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, but um, well, yeah, because it's like it's a place to build your audience, but but then get separated. From exactly. It. Yeah. <laughs> SoundCloud. <laughs> right. um, but like I, I think of these as like mass media distribution platforms. Yes. They are the pipes to the world. Patreon is and the barrier of entry is really low there. Very low. You don't need to convince somebody in a suit that you're cool enough to be heard. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You can just broadcast on those platforms without a yeah. gate really which yeah, is yeah, like yeah. let's take a second by the way to just appreciate how cool that is because i dump sure on those best. platforms a lot but like holy crap that is amazing yeah, what pretty a cool huge. time to be on earth yes like yeah. you can say something yeah. and build an audience and there's nobody telling you that uh, nah no you're not good enough yeah. you're not cool enough you can't mm-hmm. come to our platform y- yeah you can't be on our channel you can't be on our label like I yeah. have to every time I start talking shit about YouTube and and Facebook, I have to just remember like, wait a minute, the world was very different 15 years ago. Now I'm used to it, so I'm right. like not as grateful for it. But it is still very cool. Okay, that yeah. said, the mass media platforms are solving a very different problem than Patreon. Patreon is solving this problem of like, how do I build a business as a creator? Mm-hmm. We are we are helping you manage a community, build a business make money from your work, reach your fans, 
do production and merchandise, help you build a business as a creator. That's a different problem than how can I reach an audience. Right. How can I, if you need to reach an audience, which I think, again, is step one to building like a creative media-based business, is like reaching an audience, finding an audience, finding product market fit with that audience. Then the distribution panel, you know, uh, places are kind of your best bet for for step one. Then, like when you're ready to start a business, when you have an audience, when you have like product market fit on a thing that you're saying or on a media stream or whatever it is that you're doing, Patreon's an amazing place to actually build a business and to convert that into like a, a thing that is sustainable and, and works. So, step one is not Patreon. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I learned that recently. Yeah. So, you know, my wife Beck started a podcast. She asked me to be a co-host. It's called How to Love, and we started it exclusively on Patreon because some of the things we talk about, we didn't want to be just on any public platform, right? And so we wanted some sort of paywall, some barrier of entry to get in. But when there's a high barrier of entry without anything else out there yet, you realize like, oh, no one shows up right away. So we had, I think she had a couple hundred patrons or less than a couple hundred patrons to start, which was fine. And, and, and that was that that was great because you know I already had some you know, sort of in with our audience right and so there were a few hundred people showing up but then we did a public version of that where it's it's essentially like a, a radically attenuated version you can find on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else and that has led a bunch of new people to realize like oh yeah you know what I think I would like more of this or what I recognized also with our podcast you know, we do the this private podcast, it's a deeper dive. These maximum episodes are longer than our short public episodes. But some people just prefer a half hour from The Minimalist every week. They don't want to dive deep. Yeah. And that's okay, too. And so there is a particular audience that gets value from a half hour or so episode. They share it with their friends and family. And maybe their cousin becomes a patron as a result. Mm-hmm. And if had we not had that public version and we shut everything down and just went 100% Patreon, we would gr- double our audience, but we would lose out in the long, in the long term. And yeah. so, yeah, you've, you've, you guys have like figured this out, I think, and, and you're, you're getting it like intuitively and from a business perspective. And I, I think what's starting to happen is, you know, this, this idea of like the freemium media model is mm-hmm. like becoming a, a predominant business model yeah. for anybody who creates medium, you know, media in, in any form, right? We're starting to see it with publications. New York Times read six articles for free. And then if you want to read more than that, you have to pay. Yeah. Right. Um, or, you know, some of these other publications, there's a bunch of versions mm-hmm. of, of these, these sort of freemium models. I now. have not played Fortnite, but like, that's a really good example of like, here's an amazing game, but there's some options that you can buy if you want. Yeah, it's it, and that freemium business model actually is applied to things beyond media. There are a lot of companies that have a product or a service that is freemium. Like you can use Dropbox for this many months, but then afterwards you have to pay. Or use Dropbox up to this many terabytes, and then after that you have to pay. Right. Um, like the freemium business model works because people get value. To your point of adding value, people get value from a service. They get mm-hmm. attached to it. They want to use it. And then if they want to go deeper and they want more functionality, or if they want more hours, or they want more episodes. Yeah. Then you can have this other kind of, um, you know, uh, content stream mm-hmm. yeah. and people can pay for it if they want to. Yeah. But that allows an, a creator to essentially reach people mm. by by making something for the, the mass media distribution platforms. You can find your audience there mm-hmm. and then you can make stuff over here mm-hmm. and 
and actually build a business and go deeper with the people who really care. And it requires these kinds of two different streams that are built for these two different purposes, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And, and you realize that when Ryan and I started a publishing company, maybe, um, how long ago was that? 2012 that was, two, ish? that was 2013. Yeah, 2012. Yeah, 2013, something like that. And we had five authors on, on the team and I think 20 plus interns at one point in time. And yeah. uh, what we realized is like authors are now entrepreneurs. We, we called them authorpreneurs, yep. right? Mm -hmm. Because it, before, yes, there was a model where you got published by one of the, the big six and, and all these things happened for you. But even now, a traditionally published author, like Ryan and I, our new book is, is traditionally published. Um, but even, even now, the authorpreneur mindset is applicable even in the traditional sense. Absolutely. Well, An important lesson for me early on as a musician was like, nobody's going to care about my work as much as I do. Yes. Mm. And also, nobody knows about my weird internet business as much as I do. Yes. Mm -hmm. I can say, yes, Coldplay's manager, I will sign a contract with you because I, ooh, you manage Coldplay and I want you to manage to manage me. Mm -hmm. Right. But unless I'm clear about what I want and what my goals are and what I'm trying to accomplish, even then actually, this person has no idea what to do with me as a weird internet creator. Right. Like I don't make my living touring. Right. Coldplay makes their money touring because sure. their record label owns their masters. Yes. Mm. I'm the opposite. I own my masters because I didn't sign a record deal. It's a different business model. It requires yes. a different set of like solutions. Yeah. So that insight was, God, it was so important. And, and I, I find the same with creators. Like creators are, are CEOs of their own media businesses these mm. days. Um, and and th that's a, such an important mentality to bring to your work if you want to find that kind of success. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that what we don't understand is quite often, and I didn't understand it for a long time, I was an aspiring writer, and then I started writing a lot throughout my 20s, fiction mostly, and, and I wanted to go the traditional route. I just wanted to be an author. I didn't want to bother with oh, blogging, I don't even know what that is, social media, that's lame, and, and whatever it was, and it was like, well, no, there was an old system, and I was stuck like trying to start a horse and buggy business when automobiles were taking over the country, so to speak. Mm. And you think about you, know, we're, we worked in Cincinnati for a long time. It was sort of the horse and buggy capital of America. But how are those horse and buggy businesses doing now? Mm. Exactly. You know, the, the kind of broader historical context, I think what's going on here this is just my own version of what's going on, but essentially for thousands of years, the business model around art was patronage, right? Like pretty much every great piece of art that we've ever studied or known or know about in history books was made because a rich person saw something that somebody was doing and said, I like your shit. Here's a bag of coins. Go mm -hmm. make more cool shit. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's how art was financed. Right. That was yes. the business model behind art. Yeah. Then around 1900 or a little bit before, like humans basically figured out how to record art onto physical objects. Mm. We figured out how to record sound onto a wax cylinder. Mm. It was the beginning of the phonograph. We figured out how to record video, light, onto celluloid paper. It was the beginning of film. Yeah. And then for 100 years, between 1900 and 2000, or, you know, we basically developed billions of dollars of infrastructure around recording art onto physical objects mm -hmm. and then shipping art on a physical object to consumers. Mm -hmm. yes. And that that was the beginning of the unit sale right. as the primary 
like revenue mechanism mm-hmm. to fund the arts at a global scale was like, mm-hmm. I will purchase your art on a physical object and pay you for it. Mm-hmm. That was a new business model. That's only a yeah. hundred years old. Yes. Yeah. Then the internet came. Mm. And destroyed that business model. Infinite replicability. Yes. Zero scarcity. Well, what about NFTs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, don't get me started on NFTs. Uh, actually, let's not even touch yeah. on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's the third rail. It's religion, politics, and NFTs. NFTs. Oh, man. No, you're right. absolutely right. right. And so what we're realizing is things continue to change, and we can either cling to the past and get dragged by it, or we can let go of that and realize like, oh yes, I can still be an author. It requires a, a different sort of systematic approach to writing. In fact, if done well, the promotion of your writing, not the advertising, the promotion of your writing is part of the creative process now. Yes, totally. Mm. And and write like ugh, it's I, I I'm I still have to like kick myself to internalize this. I keep learning this lesson over and over again. Music making right now, um, when I think of the life of a musician and what a musician does and how a musician acts and, and, what, and the product of a musician, I think about records in the 90s when I was growing up and like releasing albums. Yeah. But that doesn't make the music that's happening on YouTube or TikTok illegitimate that is what music making is in 2021 music making is now there's short form music making there's Mm -hmm. music making that happens in 30 seconds like the song as the atomic unit of music making right is a little less relevant yeah now just like the album got less relevant when itunes rolled around do you remember third verses (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> remember that was a thing back in the 90s and the oddies even and then oh. th- that's pretty much gone yeah. every song is is two minutes and 30 seconds but what you're saying it, we're asking the same thing about books as well yes. a friend of ours julian smith wrote a book it was 30 pages long called the flinch mm-hmm. ebook only seth godin published it and you and you realize like oh what is a book well for the longest time you had to justify being able to print a physical thing exactly but we ryan have i have a free ebook on our website it's what 30 pages right at 35 pages something like that and guess what you're still authors right yeah that doesn't make you not an author like in fact precisely the opposite i think the best creators are the ones who innovate on their mediums themselves right not just the work yeah Yeah. and so you can do both by the way like we have your four books that are book length books and even those vary in size but then you could but why write a 250 page book if it requires only 25 pages you're wasting everyone's time exactly mm. yeah say it in as few words as possible only the words you need yeah <laughs> you, <minimalist. right. laughs> you know what uh, is there is is there anyone who uh, you mentioned Coldplay earlier is there anyone who's like too big for patreon where it wouldn't make sense for a cold play to sign up for a patreon i don't think so um and th- i guess the reason i'm saying that is because like we we are thinking about Patreon. My thinking about Patreon is Patreon is a way to build a business as a person who makes media and puts it into the world. Yes. So like, I know a bunch of artists who are big, like Coldplay, mm-hmm. who have a podcast. Yeah. And have an audience. Uh-huh. And some of them have actually launched on Patreon. Ben Folds is on Patreon. Oh wow. Um, Talib Kweli is on Patreon. I saw that. Like, yeah. um, you know, so. Why? Well, because they make media and they put it on the internet. Yeah. And guess what? They ought to be paid for their media too. Yes. 
and now they yeah. themselves that you mentioned earlier that Coldplay not owning their masters and now they they have they're in a position of power I'm sure whatever new deals they sign they'll own all their masters but they had to go through that sort of well they didn't have to they chose to go through that that system and it made them you know rich and famous and 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 got their music in front of a lot of people so I'm I'm not saying it was a bad thing or a wrong thing that they did that but now they have more options and what you can convey right now is you've had those options all along mm. and now you just have more of them with places like patreon well that that's i think the the purpose of putting everything in that historical context around like you know the 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 2000s rolled around the internet kind of reached mainstream adoption is now in billions of people's you know uh hands mm. um that changes a hundred years of economics around art yes and we're all still figuring that out yeah right? like the business of art is the wild wild west right now yeah we're all trying to figure out what are the right models what are the right services what is the right version of freemium what is the right version of freemium for me what is the right version of right like yeah. the economics of art is being is being constructed as we speak mm. and and again it's it's anything goes right now so so like people are this is actually a very critical moment for humanity. I'm an optimist. I think we're going to emerge much stronger yeah. than, than before. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to be a weird decade while, you know, while we figure out the economics again, because we had built up a hundred years of infrastructure, yeah. shipping, retail locations, manufacturing, freaking jewel cases. Like what happened to all the jewel case manufacturers? Like right. they're all out of business. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, yeah. All of the industry around art creation is being rethought and reconstructed right now. Yeah. And we're going to figure it out. I'm yeah. long on humans. Like we're going to we're going to get through it. We're going to figure it out, but it's going to be some time for us to to get through that. Yeah. Indeed. It's almost like as soon as we figure it out, it's going to start changing again anyway. I mean, that's just Absolutely. It's well, evolution. Nothing is fixed, right? Yeah. I I love how I you know, hearing you talk about it, I just realized like Patreon is it's the the record label, it's the publisher, it's it's the broadcasting station that n doesn't tell anyone no. I mean, I love that. It's so, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, and and because of that, because there isn't a gatekeeper, you are responsible for your own audience as well. And as you said, it's not magic. Because someone listening to this said, "You, know, I'm a writer. I've been writing for a year. I'm gonna go ahead and start a Patreon." And then you know, uh, two friends and one of your parents signs up. I I totally get how that can be frustrating at first and it's just like well that's putting the cart before the horse mm -hmm. before building up a, a sort of audience and so it is possible as you discussed that there are so many mediums out there through which you can build an audience and then funnel some of those people in who want to support you not because it's charity it's not some sort of donation what we and that's how we actually start when we started patreon i was like hey let's we'll put up we, we did these little postscript episodes and they were five to ten minutes long after the podcast mm -hmm. and we were putting out two hour episodes uh, in public <laughs> we were like wait a minute yeah and, and what it turns out is, and people were complaining your episodes are too long and it's like okay well we can make them shorter there or you could just hit the pause button but whatever that, that's true <laughs> uh, or we could we could say all right some people really do want to do the deep dive and there mm -hmm. are thousands of people it turns out who want to do a deep dive yeah. and those people have that opportunity the other people they don't have to be bothered by you know two hours of a of a long podcast yeah. i do want to dive into some of these questions i will say this though 
Patreons, we're, we're still in a, we're in a temporary studio space right now. Our previous studio, which was in Hollywood, the whole building closed down during COVID. And so we're in this temporary uh, co-working space right now. We're building out a new studio in, in Hollywood now. And uh, that's possible because of Patreon. Yeah. So um, once it's it's up and running, we'll uh, make sure we send you some photos and oh, you can you can take so a look cool. at it. I would love that. Yeah. Please do send me photos. It, it's going to look great. We're, we're, uh, we just talked to the sound paneling guy now. Sean's working on all the equipment. We've got uh, engineers and other people working on it. It's going to look beautiful. That is so amazing. Yeah. I, I, if you send me photos, I will show them at all hands. That kind of stuff like gets the team awesome. so fired up. So, yeah. Yeah. Heck it's yeah. great. Heck For yeah. sure. Well, let's dive into some questions. Before we get into these written questions, I know we had that question we skipped from Meredith. Can we play that one oh, yeah. podcast, Sean? I was wondering if you have a minimalist philosophy on insurance, specifically health insurance. I'm at a point with a new job where I'm having to choose whether I want to get it or not. And it seems like a just-in-case type of thing because I'm not anticipating any major medical issues. But it does kind of feel like it would be the smarter option to get it. But I was wondering if you guys had any insight or tips to navigating insurance. And if you do, I'd love to hear it. So, Ryan, I'm told that Meredith's question is one of a dozen or so people who called in with a very similar question, which means thousands of people are actually thinking this question if a lot of people are calling in with the same question. It's a very valid question. I was just talking with a friend this week about them retiring, and their their job is stressing them out a ton. And he's an older gentleman, past 65. And I'm like, why are you still working? Like, have you, are you like not set up for retirement? He's like, no, actually, like I was talking to my uh, finance guy and I've got plenty of money in retirement. Um, I mean, he said something about like he could, you know, set up to where he could get like six figures a year in retirement uh, before taxes, I think, I think. But regardless, I'm like, dude, so you're set up, man. Like, you can totally retire. What is holding you back? And he's like, well, you know, I've got insurance for me and my wife. Mm. And I'm worried that, you know, next year, I know my wife has got some stuff coming up. And I don't want to have to, you know, put that, you know, pay for that out of pocket. I'm like, well, how much is your insurance? Like, how much would it be? He's like, oh, it's probably about $1,500 a month. Wow. I'm like, so it's $18,000 a year uh-huh. for you to do this. You're telling me that your your finance guy is telling you you have access to about six figures a year and $18,000 is what is holding you back. So I, I know that this is kind of an anomaly. Uh, it's, it's an exception, but it's just interesting how that $1,500 a month, which he could very easily afford, it's still... Uh, it's still preventing him from doing what he knows he needs to do. Yeah, I think sometimes the narrative we tell ourselves about why we're staying behind is only the narrative, and it may not be the complete picture. Yeah. The the fear, we, we need to put some sort of label on the fear. I'm afraid of leaving. I'm afraid of failing. And so I can. the easiest thing for me to say is the societal acceptable thing. It's healthcare Because we can all acknowledge that our health care system in the United States of America is broken. You mean our sick care system? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and by the way, we, you know, we, we don't focus on well-being. We don't actually focus on health. The majority of us now have chronic illnesses. There are a litany of reasons that that exists. But be that as it may, we are here right now. And what we're recognizing is... Yeah, there are there's a problem with our healthcare system, but that doesn't have to be as Ryan you've alluded to. Uh, that doesn't have to be the reason that we stay stay behind and stay miserable. Yeah. And, and so maybe if we posit it in a different way, I'm staying miserable so that I can pay for my health insurance. Mm-hmm. 
Well, maybe there's, there's a different way. And that different way quite often is how much is it going to cost me? Because yeah, this yeah. ultimately just becomes part of my budget. We, when you and I walked away from the corporate world, it was like, okay, our insurance is about 350 bucks a month, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's just part of my every month budget. It's there with rent and utilities yeah. and now health insurance. Now, Jack, Patreon doesn't give us health insurance, do they? Maybe, am I missing out on something here? Not yet. Do you guys do uh-oh, a- uh-oh. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I mean, I, look, I, the, the fact that benefits are tied to the employer right, right. now. Yeah. Um, and what that means for this emerging creative class who doesn't have a traditional employer, that's got to be fixed. It will be fixed. Somebody's going to fix that because it's nonsense. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, so maybe Patreon is going to be the place where creatives can go <laughs> to get their benefits. Get well. in, in the meantime, I think what we need to understand, Meredith, if I, if I look at your question here, and, and what you're really saying is how do I navigate this complex world of insurance? It's mm. overwhelming. Yeah. And it's not overwhelming for you right now because mommy and daddy, the employer, they take care of it for you, right? Yeah. And, and so do you need it? She's also asking, is it a just-in-case item? Or is it just for win item or an emergency item? Let's talk. So we, we, we have these 16 rules for living with less. And uh, uh, the, I just mentioned three of them there. One is just in case items. We call it the 2020 rule. Anything I'm holding on to just in case, you know, all those cables are sitting in your junk drawer. You can replace for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes wherever you are. And, and, and that frees up space to get rid of tens of thousands of just in case items. The good news is you never have to use the rule. All those Very things rarely. we're holding on to just in case we never ever use. Right. And you know because you have a studio. And so there's a lot of just in case items there. You're like, wow, this is from 1993 <laughs> and it's been sitting here ever since. Now, there are these just in case items that Ryan and I say, okay, it does make sense to hold on to. They're emergency items. Yeah. They're the just-in-case items you hope you never, ever have to use. My first aid kit is a just-in-case item, the, but it's an emergency item. The spare tire on my car, I don't want to use it, but it's there just in case I absolutely need it. So mm-hmm. emergency items are the sort of one subset of just-in-case items we set aside. We call it the emergency item rule. Mm-hmm. And then there are these other things that are just for win items. I think health insurance is sort of a combination, depending on your health status, it's either an emergency item mm-hmm. where you're like, okay, I'm, I have that in case some sort of catastrophe happens, right? Mm-hmm. And then I will have access to health care. Then, then you had just have catastrophic coverage. That's what Ryan and I have. And so if some sort of catastrophe happens, I end up in the emergency room, something's broken, whatever, uh, I can handle it. Very high deductible. Mm-hmm. Now, there could be a case where there's just for when, you know, if you are a type one diabetic, for example, you need medication every month, well, then you need insurance just for when, or you're going to be paying out of pocket every single month. Yeah. It's either way that needs to become part of the budgeting. And yes, I think our system and our costs are skyrocketing. They're out of control. Medical debt is responsible for more um, people being financially bankrupt than just about anything else at this point. Yeah. It's a huge problem. But in order for it to not be a problem in our own lives, it just becomes part of our budget. So we understand that if I'm a business owner, if I'm a creator and I want health insurance, mm-hmm. well, then I'm going to have to plan for that just like I'm going to pl- plan for rent or yeah. you know, w- whatever other expenses I have in my life. Yeah. It's so funny. I ha- I'm like thinking of a few different solutions to people who uh, need insurance who can't afford to pay for it outright on their own every month. Like one thing I'm thinking about is I know 
that let's say you go to the emergency room, like you, you know, God forbid you have an emergency, you don't have insurance, you go there, um, you get this huge ER bill. If you don't have the income, you know, there's a certain level of income. If you don't make that, uh, that will get subsidized. I'm not encouraging people to go and take advantage of, you know, like, uh, of, of subsidizing your medical bills. I mean, that's not what I'm saying, but there are options for emergency type situations like that. Another, th- another thing too, like I asked my friend who I was having this conversation with um, about retirement. I'm like, dude, how much a year would you pay to not have the stress? Like, is it worth the $18,000 a year? And he's like, yeah, like you put it that way. Like I would definitely, you know, as long as you can afford it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, ask yourself, uh, Meredith, like, what is it worth for you to go out on your own. Uh, yeah, if you have to pay an extra 300 bucks a month for your insurance, it's a lot of money, but maybe it's worth um, taking that stress away. Another thing I was thinking too is like, there's there's Medicare, right? I mean, it's not it's not the best insurance in the world, but it is, is it Medicare or Medicaid? Medicare, right? Medicaid's if you're over 65, I believe. Right, yeah, so Medicare. I mean, I know people, I know uh, I have friends who are starving artists and that's what they're on. No, it's not the best option for insurance. It's not this Cadillac insurance, but when they get sick, they have something to fall back on. So it's not, um, I just don't want Meredith here to, to feel completely hopeless. I mean, there are some things that, uh, yeah, maybe it's not as good as the insurance you have right now, but there certainly are options that you can look at um, outside of, you know, what your employer pays for you. It seems like maybe there's a difference in with, with you know, between just in case items, the difference between a cable, you know, and health insurance mm-hmm. is that the risk associated with not having a cable when you need it is very small. Yes. Right. The yes. risk associated with not having health insurance when you need it mm-hmm. could be catastrophic. And absolutely. that's why it's an emergency item, yes. right? Okay. And that, that's yeah. why I look at it as one of those things that no, is absolutely point. necessary. And in fact, um, what I will tell you is that because of Patreon, and we've found a number that works for us monetarily, we're gonna make sure, so you, we see Sean and, and Jordan here, we also have Jess on our team. Uh, we're gonna make sure everyone has health insurance once we reach a certain number of patrons so that we can afford to pay for health insurance for everyone on the team that's as well. Pomplamoose is actually doing that right oh, now. That's awesome. We're just going through health benefits. Very cool. yeah. That's beautiful. So so giving a, Patreon is in a way giving us the opportunity, keeping the podcast 100% advertisement free, but still being able to you know, we, we always joke that this episode of The Minimalist is brought to you by nobody because advertisements suck. But the truth is, it's brought to you by you, patrons. Yes. Mm. And it's brought to everyone by the few people who are willing to support. And I know Podcast Sean and his entire family, he has, I don't know, 13 kids or something. Uh, <laughs> who knows how many kids Jordan has? Um, he doesn't even know. Yeah, yeah. He claims none on his taxes. But, right. Uh, but yeah, what, what we've learned is like, hey, we, we want to be able to provide that as well as a, as a sort of benefit to, to the team to say thank you. So thank you to the patrons for, for supporting us and providing that as well. Amen. It's amazing. Such a beautiful thing. We got some more questions here. Let's uh, let's move down to Rebecca's question. How do I get started as a small business owner when I don't have any funds to invest? Now, two types of businesses I think about here, Jack. One is Ryan and I own a coffee shop down in Florida. Um, I know, right? Yeah, I, I see this look. And it's not Patreon funded. It's actually, it, but it is patron funded. You know, we have customers who come in and sure. buy our products and services, right? We're actually uh, opening up the restaurant portion of it this uh, this month. And um, what we've done there is a brick and mortar business and it required some investment upfront in order to do that. In fact, that's how we got involved in the first place. Our friends, Joshua and Sarah Weaver, they're opening this coffee shop. We said, hey, we'll help you out. We screened our first documentary down there to try and bring a bunch of people in and that worked. And we got there, he's like, hey, our last round of financing fell through. 
and are like, really? How much money do you need? Mm -hmm. And he told us, and I'm like, that's exactly how much money we have in savings. <laughs> how about we invest in your, your coffee business? And uh, we did. That was about five, six years ago. Yeah. And so we own a coffee business that requires some upfront capital. However, most businesses, businesses these days, like theminimalists.com, right. that required, I think, about $7 upfront to buy the domain. Right. Well, it's, it's crazy because like people, especially when we first started, people were, were asking or some were making the accusations of like, oh, well, you guys left the corporate world, so you must have had a big golden parachute to like get you through a couple of years. And it's like, no, we... We did not have this this golden parachute. We we simplified our lives, so we had less bills. We paid off as much debt as we could. Um, but yeah, the other thing too is our creations. It didn't take a whole lot of investment. And to your point about you know this being the wild wild west for artists, that's the beauty of it. Like it doesn't take a lot of money to create these days. No, it it doesn't. And and in fact, the best things here. This this actually drives me bananas. It's so hard for brands to make compelling videos, podcasts, audio, you name it. Brands will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars, yeah. <laughs> making media. Their yep. media sucks right. compared to the 14-year-old kid in his basement with his iPhone filming himself saying shit that's on his mind. Yes. Yeah. Like, that's the real shit that connects with people yeah. because mm -hmm. it comes from a place of of authenticity it mm -hmm. comes from this like it comes from a real person yes who is just like us that stuff is so inspiring and i think reaches more people than the multi-million dollar productions yeah. that have these insane budgets well, here's the thing is like if you have creations that are adding value to other people's lives if you're creating something that uh that people are really enjoying it doesn't matter like what kind of camera you have. It doesn't matter. I mean, you could play on a, you know, $150 practice acoustic guitar, or you can go out and spend thousands of dollars on, you know, a, a really nice guitar. If you're a good guitar player, you're going to, uh, no matter what tool you're using, you're going to reach people and people are going to spread your creations around. Yeah. I'd rather hear John Mayer on a generic guitar than Ryan Nicodemus on the nicest Taylor. Oh, <laughs> I mean, and I love Ryan. <laughs> that hurts my feelings. We made our first Skrillex one of my favorite uh, EDM producers, mm -hmm. which oh. you now know, mm -hmm. um, mixed scary monsters and nice sprites on a pair of $250 reference monitors. Wow. One of them was broken. Wow. <laughs> Pomplamoose made our first record from which we made hundreds of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. and bought a house and built a recording studio. We recorded that entire record on a $500 Mbox um, with one microphone that I got mm. at Guitar Center. Yeah, wow. Um, Patreon, we started Patreon. I wasn't taking a salary. My co-founder wasn't taking a salary. Mm -hmm. We had no funding. Yeah. We just built it. He yeah. built it. Um, and then we went for three months. Then we got funding. Once it was working and out there and people were using it. I, I like the idea of starting with nothing. I yes. think actually that constraint yields a lot of creativity. Absolutely. Dude, you hit the nail on the head because we constantly talk about how constraints breed creativity. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I'll tell you that you're conjuring up images in my head. When we first started this podcast, we were living in Missoula, Montana. Oh my God. And we were in a- <laughs> Missoula? You guys are from Missoula? Yeah. We were yeah. from Dayton, Ohio originally. Yeah. But, but we lived yeah. there for like six years. Yeah. Do we, you know the Green Brothers? No, oh, never I mean, met Hank. We, no, we know of them, John. but yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Um, I guess it's a big place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, not really. No, <laughs> 70,000 people. I'll be honest. I'm not cool enough to hang out with the Green Brothers. <laughs> oh, come on. You guys would get along really well. Oh, so anyway, we, we were at the, uh, the University of Montana was nice enough to rent a room to us. When I say a room, it was a storage closet that 
they converted into a quote office. Mm. So when you go back and listen to the original episodes of the Minimalist podcast, they're all recorded in a storage closet at the University of Montana. Yeah. Podcast Sean, Ryan and I are all crammed into this room at one desk with uh, We were like sharing a Yeti microphone or something. Yeah. yeah. Now I will tell you this. Uh, quality is still important though. So I want to I want to get that across. And maybe maybe we'll differ slightly on this, but um, you want to do the best you can given the resources you have. Yes. And I, so I, I want to be clear because there's a lot of crap out there and people think, well, I'll just fire up my iPhone and start a podcast. Yeah, that might work, but you might be a whole lot happier if you buy the $100 microphone in addition to recording it on your iPhone. I would also yeah. argue that quality means different things. Yes. And mm. like quality doesn't necessarily mean image quality. Or audio quality. Yeah. Quality can mean craftsmanship. Yes. I mean, actually, one of my favorite things about the Beatles, for example, is like when you hear their records, you can hear that they are pushing the boundaries of what you can do with tape. Mm-hmm. Like they're, for some of those records, they strung 12 tape machines together to mm-hmm. make those sounds and mm-hmm. to do those loops. Oh, wow. And they were like, go back and listen to those records. Yeah, the fidelity isn't as good as records today, but the craftsmanship the ideas, the core of it, the soul of it is incredibly high quality. Yes. Um, so like quality, again, quality, you, you can, quality can manifest in a number of ways. It doesn't have to manifest in the, uh, you know, expensiveness of the gear that you're using to produce the thing. Absolutely. Well, it, it makes me think about what you're saying about the 14 year old kid who's, who's giving you something very real and raw. Like that is a high quality uh, piece of content. I'll, I'll say a high quality creation. I don't want to say content because yeah, I, I hate the c word. Yeah, <laughs> right. I me. say it all the time because <laughs> I'm used to it now, but it sucks. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, we, we we like we avoid the the content thing because it's like. I think it's one of the problems is everyone has become a content creator. Mm, and there's know. a sort of vapidity to that um, where people aren't worried about creating something meaningful or worthwhile. It's a, it, 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 in fact, it becomes obligatory mm. where it's like, um, now I, I met, we talked to Matt Diavella about this when he did the podcast. He, he was talking about for a while he got burnt out because he felt, he now felt obligated to every week post one of these 10 minute documentaries on his channel. So he was obligated and it almost took the, it took the art out of or the artistry out of the art because I mean that is what the word that is why that word is important and I think why words in general are important they mm. come with baggage content fills a hole mm. it assumes that there is a hole that must be filled yeah. oh. content is a product of the feed mm. it's yes. it's a product of mass media platforms yes. the word content how tech companies think about art yeah. They think about it as content. content. I need something for the feed. I need inventory yeah. to show people. They commodity. need posts. It's a commodity. Oh. It's more it's more of that problem, more of that language. Yeah. Let's get to That's John's question here, Ryan. All right. <clears throat> John wrote in uh what are, what the, are the biggest, biggest mistakes? mistakes? <laughs> Thanks. What are the biggest mistakes folks made that prevent them from being profitable? What are the biggest mistakes folks make that prevent them from being profitable. Mm. So, um, well, I mean, we, we can talk about this. I think one of the biggest mistakes that uh, mm. it, it always revolves around the need to be profitable. Yes, I was, thinking, I was just going to say I was thinking that. that too. I'm like, the biggest mistake is you try to be profitable. Right. That's Expand the biggest that. mistake is that's your number one priority. Add value. <laughs> yeah. Make yeah. something beautiful and mm-hmm. important that people want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, focus on that. 
focus yeah. on making some going above and beyond. I think if you're worrying about profit at the beginning, then you ha- you have a tendency to over optimize the financial end of the business yeah. instead of making something that's truly exceptional. Yeah. That like comes back to that idea for why when I was making the video, I was like, I'm not going to worry about the finances. I'm just going to make this as best as I possibly you know possibly can. Yeah. Again, I'm not saying that's always the right decision, but I do think focusing on building something valuable and just being laser focused on that generating value that is what leads to long-term profitability 100 percent. here's the next 100 percent. identifying what is enough i think we never stop to consider like what is enough because quite often it's always more 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 i mean ryan and i are the minimalists right but but when we talk about enough what we're really talking about is uncovering enough through subtraction quite often you know this through music quite often you have to build up a song and it swells and then you start stripping out this track or you know what let's let's just turn that down or you know what those drums were great at first but now they're superfluous so let's remove that or let's make it simpler and and it's building up the complexity or the marble so then you can sculpt your masterpiece out of it yeah absolutely Uh, yeah. yeah chipping away at the marble yeah yep yeah, because here's the thing too, is like if you don't identify what enough is, if you're focusing on just making money, then your creations, it starts to turn into content. And now you're just worried about getting units out. Yep. And that's that's really, that's the mistake because it's it's not about how many units, it's the quality of the creations. So- Okay, I have a question for you guys. I know we're in the question segment. And this yeah, is yeah. probably this is a this is a maybe this is a long one, but I, I think we we have a slightly different perspective, which is why I wanted to explore this yeah, issue. Yeah, let's talk about it. On like and and it's the, it's the concept of like is it enough? And um, so here's what I can't reconcile. Like mm. I I am an ambitious person. Mm-hmm. Like yes. I I, and it's not amb- it's not ambitious because I want stuff or I want money. It's ambitious because I am I only get to be a person for if I'm lucky 75 or 76 years. Yeah. Yes. I only get to have a body and hands and a brain. I only get to have a brain for 76 years. Yeah. Right. And then for literally trillions of years afterwards nothing. Right. And no brain. I don't get to have impact. I don't get to help people. Mm. Like I have such a I'm a blip. I'm a tiny blue blip you know in a in an infinite yeah. timeline yeah i want to have as much impact on other people as possible i want to mm. add value to people's lives i want to i want to help people learn i want to help creators build their businesses mm. like and what i can't reconcile is like what like i'm i don't ask like what is enough impact that's not the question I ask myself. The mm. question I ask myself is like, how can I have more impact yeah. on people? Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I guess that maybe maybe we don't disagree, but I I'm not. I guess yeah. Well, what's your what's well, your thoughts on my, that? My thought is enough is not the end goal. It, for specifically with what you're talking about, like when I think about enough, it's about you know what is the appropriate amount of. I don't know, like we, when we look at our, uh, you know, our, our, our Patreon audience, you know, we, we have set a certain cap on certain things because we have decided like that's what is enough, but that might grow over time and it's okay to, to have more of an audience. Like what's the appropriate audience? Okay. Well, if we reach more than 20 million people, then, you know, we have to like scale back. Like that's, that's not kind of, that's yeah enough. Again, if I had to put it simply, I'd say enough isn't the end goal. It's the it's kind of the, the 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 measurement that you can use to give yourself permission 
to uh, yes, yes, to feel good or to I don't know what not to feel good. There's like there's an element of ambition that can um, manifest in a lack of gratitude for what you've accomplished and for the impact that you've had. And I think that the the constant pursuit of more skirts gratitude, and 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 so. Is it possible, this is the question here, and what Ryan is really saying there, I think, is enough changes over time, too. Yeah, sure. And so sometimes yeah. yesterday's enough could be too much today, yep. and so we have, to, we have to keep that in mind, and, and, and then today's enough might not be enough a week from now, a month from now, 10 years from now, because as our circumstances change, or for example, Ryan and I now have you know, Jordan and, and Jess and, and Sean on board, there's 12 people total who are part of the minimalists, and, and once upon a time, it was just me and Ryan and his Toyota Corolla mm. with a trunk of books uh, going from bookstore to bookstore. That's so cool. Right. The good uh, old oh, days. So cool. it, yes. We actually <laughs> took, we took the, the musician model, and instead of CDs in our trunk, we had books. And mm. we did 119 cities in one year just oh going from God, bookstore to bookstore. you guys are badasses. That's <laughs> so great. I'll tell you, we got really lucky with, uh, with CreateSpace because when we first wrote Minimalism, the create space hadn't really like gone full blown. So all we had was an ebook. So it wasn't as easy for us to like put books in the trunk of our car and drive around. But then it just so happened. I don't know when create space became yeah, somewhere around 2011. Yeah, yeah. 2011. Or, and it just so happened that we got lucky. We were like, Oh, like we can print our own books and, uh, without printing 50,000 right, at a time. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So it, it, there was a little bit of like technology luck that we, that we came across with there. But, uh, and then a lot of you know, blood, sweat, and tears. Quite literally. Yeah. Uh, there's blood. Yes. Remember, remember Milwaukee? Yeah, man. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's blood everywhere, all over the Lowe's okay. parking lot. Or there was a Love's parking okay. lot. Yeah. Come on. That's, that's yeah. got to. Yeah. Wait, let's hear it. No, uh, so, no he, uh, he, he basically, we, we had a, he had a bottle of Topo Chico in the door. We entered the van. The best fizzy water, by the way. It was yes. until we found out how it like, is- like Oh, oh, poison is in I it. I still drink what? it. What? Don't yeah, tell. You can't drink it anymore. Don't tell Josh. I still drink it. Uh, just it, type in Tobo Chico Consumer Reports. It'll freak you out. You got to start drinking Mountain Valley. I'm sorry if you care. If you care about like your health. Mountain Valley, but it's not as. It's not I nearly know. as good as Topo Chico. I know, the only, but it's not going to kill you. The only thing that I can make as close to Topo Chico is if I have the Soda Stream. Like oh. that is, I can get it close, but they, they have like this perfect ratio of like fizz to water. Yeah. I know. And, and the bubbles are so small. Or whatever else is in <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> so he opens up the door, this bottle of Topo Chico falls out, it breaks. Explodes. It, it, yeah, it breaks, explodes, and then a piece like of glass basically shoots up and like slices his leg. I mean, and, and it was yeah. blood ever. I'm hobbling into the Love's bathroom, and uh, <laughs> we have a tour stop. We were driving from Chicago to Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and we have a tour stop that night. And I mean, there's blood everywhere. It, I, I've, I, for a moment, I thought, oh, this is where it ends. I'm going to die on the floor of the love's bathroom. <laughs> I couldn't walk. Um, and thankfully, there was a nurse who happened to be shopping there, came in and bandaged me up. Mm-hmm. Um, and we made it to Milwaukee that night. We went to the theater, you know, a thousand people there. He rolls me out on stage in a wheelchair. Oh, my gosh. No, I carried you out on the oh, stage. Oh, that's right. There was a wheelchair already there. <laughs> right. That's right. You carried me and placed me in the wheelchair. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was great. Um, anyway. So uh, Topo Chico will quite literally kill you. Right, exactly. Not careful. Yeah. It's been trying for years. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, back to enough. Here's a, here's a quick excerpt from Love People Use Things. So this will answer your question, maybe. Oh, before I get to this, uh, we did something recently that uh, I think most creators wouldn't do. Uh, we call it the, the great unfollowing. And we looked at our email list, which has half a million plus people on it, right? A lot of people. And we said, okay, if you haven't opened an email of ours in the last month, 
we're just going to remove you from the list. Over 100,000 people just gone yeah. from our and what we what we realized is like okay, like we're we're not creating this for you and we don't want to clutter your inbox. I mean, we are the minimalists after all. So like if you don't want to receive this, that's fine. It it and so we did that and we we actively encourage people to unsubscribe or unfollow us on social media and it's not some sort of ploy where it's like um Uh, reverse psychology, psychology <laughs> marketing tact. No, it's like what we really hope to do is that we add value to your life. And if we don't, then that's okay as well. But I don't want to be a part of the the clutter, the noise. And and, and I think quite often it's a, it's so noisy right now. And I'd rather you know what Ryan and I try to do is we we whisper in a crowded room and the people who are willing to sort of congregate around you they they hear it that, there's a david foster wallace analogy he talks about um uh whistling mozart at a metallica concert and that <laughs> image just sort of yeah. stayed in my Dude. like i want to be the guy whistling mozart at the metallica concert because it is, is it is so noisy instead of trying to cut through all the noise exactly yeah But what's nice about that technique i've never thought about that it's such a good idea it what's nice about it is if you don't do that the risk is that you can start to adjust your Bingo. work mm. to cut through yeah, and yeah. work that is attempting to cut through and increase your conversion rates and click-through rates on emails. Yeah. Then you start getting baity with titles yeah. and then it reduces the value of the work itself because yeah. instead of being yourselves, instead of coming from a place of authenticity, you're, you're trying to cut through and it starts to cheapen the work. Yeah, you're trying to be the, the loudest person and yes. there's too many loud people these days. And and it, it becomes oh, art by committee. such a good committee. idea, I love that idea. It becomes art by committee yeah. or corporate creations mm. in a way like it, it, and then it, it turns into the thing you're talking about the corporations who focus group their podcast or whatever if ryan and i did that then it wouldn't be what it is now it makes me think about that speaking event we did in new york city and uh you know where we met uh tia um Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, we were up there on stage and they're asking us questions and it was so loud and so much noise going on and light shows and like all the, and, and it was in one small room. It's all going on at once mm -hmm. and we were getting interviewed and it was just amazing because like the people who were there to see us, like they were just kind of around the stage and it was like we had this one little quiet spot that we made ourselves. Yes, amid the chaos. All this chaos, yeah. Yeah. All right, here's uh, how much is enough. How much is enough? Without asking this question, we blindly pursue excess. We've been acculturated to drink from the fire hose of consumption. Acquire, consume, indulge. More, more, more. How much is enough? Without an answer, we don't know how to proceed because we don't know when to stop. Mindless desire takes us by the hand. Naturally, enough is different for each of us. Enough changes as our needs and circumstances change. Your enough may include a sofa, coffee table and TV, a dining table that seats six, a three-bedroom home, a two-car garage, a backyard trampoline. Or that might be too much. Enough changes over time. Yesterday's enough may be too much today. How much is enough? Less than enough is depriving. And I think that's the thing. When people think about minimalism, they think stark white walls, and which is ironic because we're in a place with stark white walls <laughs> right now. But um, this is not our space. But even then, it doesn't have to be that. And it's certainly not, it's not deprivationism, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about enough, it's not about depriving yourself to get to enough. It's like, 
Well, no. We know like when I eat enough food, that's what nourishes me. If I eat too much food, well, then you know, a lot of health problems occur, right? Yeah. Uh, less than enough is depriving. More than enough is indulging. Enough is the sweet spot in the middle, the place where intentionality intersects with contentment, where lust doesn't get in the way of creating something meaningful. Mm. Sure, you could pursue more, but could is not a good reason to do anything. Enough is enough when you decide it's enough. And I think that's that's been our philosophy, and you know we're articulating it this way now. But it's been our philosophy for a while because because identifying enough with the stuff or with the creativity or whatever, then all of a sudden you're not beholden to more. Mm-hmm. And once we're beholden to more, there's this chasing, and the chasing there's nothing wrong with it, but it does always the chase disrupts our tranquility, our peace, our yeah. contentment. The pursuit of happiness is the problem. It's actually what prevents us from being happy. And it's even written into you know, it, our, the fabric of our country, the pursuit of happiness. It's like, well, no, you can drop the pursuit and, and simply be happy and create while you're doing it. Yeah. One last thing. I want to acknowledge you for doing this because it's given us the ability to, to pay a bunch of people a, you know, a, a, a really good wage to do creative work as well. Mm. And they're, ne- they're never beholden to metrics and, and, hey, how many shares did that post get? And, and all of the sort of vapidity that, is, uh, that trickles into creativity. We're able to create things without having to worry about, well, uh, you know what? If we could just get 100,000 more likes on this Facebook post or whatever, mm-hmm. then we'll be happy. No, we're creating. We don't have to do ads. And that's thanks to Patreon. So yeah. thank you. Heck yeah. You're awesome, Love man. it, guys. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, we're, we're, that's super motivating, and that's uh, why we're in the game. Awesome, oh, and man. check out Pomplamoose. Yeah. yeah. All right, y'all. Love people, use things. <laughs> we'll see you next time. See you. <laughs> Bye. The Minimalists. <laughs>